1: to the podcast
2: welcome back everybody
1: so we're continuing on our October adventure into horror <laughs> movies uh we're really into the countdown now we're like yeah less than two weeks away till Halloween it's our favorite time of year guys and we still have one more episode after this one for for October but uh I'm really excited about this one we're getting into slasher territory of 1981 it was a few years ago we dedicated an entire episode to slasher films Uh, we pretty much covered like 40 years of slasher (laughs) movies it was crazy and we compressed it all down into like a two and a half hour episode so we've got uh our work is a little bit easier for us tonight since we're specifically only dealing with 1981 and then specifically mainly talking about the slasher film uh classic my bloody valentine
2: this was such a fun revisit, and after numerous times of watching this film, there's a theatrical cut and a unrated edition. There's just a lot of appreciation I have for this film in so many respects. I can't wait to talk about everything to do with it, and I would have never thought I would say that about My Bloody Valentine too. Just having seen it a couple times before, diving into it, love it.
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. You know, My Bloody Valentine was not one of the slashers that I was drawn to back when I was a kid, like into slasher movies, hardcore. You know, it does have some similarities between the ones that came before it. I mean, obviously, it's been influenced by Halloween and Black Christmas and these early slasher pioneers. But I think it really strives to be its own movie. It has all these elements that make a slasher what it is. And we'll get into that. We'll talk about the things that it does, and we'll talk about how it sets itself apart amongst other slashers. Specifically, in the year it came out, 1981, which um, I think a lot of people can agree was a golden year, a golden era for horror films. And um, I think like the most well-crafted slashers came out in like a large quantity in 1981. And we'll definitely get into some of those. We'll name drop some titles and we'll even (laughs) uh, even our picks of the week. uh, We'll uh, talk about some slashers from 81.
2: One thing I can't wait to get into is the story of this film. And I think one of the reasons that this movie maybe didn't resonate with you and I, Justin, and I'm speculating here, is that this is A little bit more of an adult slasher film. And I think when you're talking about the genre of slashers, it is targeted towards such a young audience. And I'm not saying that this can't be appealing for teenagers, but I think that the older that you get, it's a it it just it, it has a little bit more of of an adult vibe than a lot of other ones. So we're gonna talk about the story, the atmosphere of this movie, how much importance that the location played in this film and some problems that they had filming too.
1: And we'll get into some behind the scenes. We'll get into the release of this movie. Uh, This is one, like many slashers of this era, that Weren't uh, wildly successful when they came out, but have grown a rabid fan base over the years. And, and certainly this is uh, one of those that I think uh, is up there on people's lists of favorite slasher movies from the 80s. As
2: far as like slashers go, popular slashers, it definitely has a cult following. But I think it's still one of the more underseen films.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think we, we've got this nice trio here. Um, our picks yeah. of the week are both, I think, as well, underseen slashers. Lindsay, you'll be doing 1981's Happy Birthday to Me.
2: Yep, I can't wait. And you're doing 1981's The Prowler. Yeah. Both great covers. Yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> all three, the, actually, you have know, really all, great all covers. Three, all three of these
1: movies I think I didn't see when I was a kid because the yeah. box, the VHS box, scared me so yeah. much. Very terrifying uh, <laughs> cover art for these movies. Effective. Um, yeah, very effective. So we'll get into that, and as always, we'll get into our Murray moment. I'll be uh, curious how Lindsay uh, connects Bill Murray to My Bloody Valentine. It's always a struggle. Yeah, it's a challenge. It's (laughs) a challenge today.
2: I I should say it's always a struggle for uh, Halloween editions. Yeah, the man's not really known for being a big Halloween guy. Movies, yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, But uh, before we get into our first clip from My Bloody Valentine, it's always strange too doing clips for slasher movies because it's like (laughs) there's the dialogue isn't usually the strong suit but i just don't want a bunch of sounds of people screaming and sounds of throats getting slit so this was when i had
2: to turn down for the dogs a couple times we'll have to figure something
1: out for an interesting clip but before we get to that um can you give us the brief lowdown the story of my ability valentine what is this movie about your interpretation
2: Well, Valentine Bluffs is a small mining town where everyone knows each other's business, and after a long day down in the mines, the local pub turns into an all-night social hour. And because of the town's namesake, Valentine's Day is one of the biggest events of the year. But you see, this close-knit community hasn't been able to have a Valentine's dance for 20 years because they've been living with a dark past. For you see, all those years ago, there was a horrible incident. Two foremen failed to check the methane levels at the mine and instead left for the beloved Valentine's dance. Because of their irresponsibility, there was an explosion, trapping seven miners down below. Harry Warden was the only one to survive, but left insane from resorting to cannibalism to stay alive. The next Valentine's Day, he murdered the supervisors responsible for the disaster and warned the entire town never to have a Valentine's Day dance again or else he would return and kill again. It's been 20 years. Harry Warden's nothing but a ghost story to the new generation of miners. Would they actually dare to test Harry's warning after so long? We wouldn't have a movie if they didn't.
1: I enjoy that dramatic delivery. <laughs> Very Halloween-esque.
2: I mean, you got to tell the legend. You got to yeah, tell the legend to set this up. It.
1: I appreciate the effort. <laughs> so listeners, relax. Let's enjoy another uh, Halloween edition of Don't Push Pause. We'll get into a clip. We'll come back. We'll talk about My Bloody Valentine.
0: Right. Stavinsky! Right. You never should have left them in the first place. Maybe they're down there. Jesus! <laughs> Jesus! What the <laughs> hell are you trying <laughs> to do? Are you all right? Yes! Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're fine. What's the matter with you? we got to get the hell out of here. Harry Warden is back. He's killed Sylvia and Dave up top. Are you kidding? <laughs> Harry's dead. Harry died a long time ago. Did you <laughs> shut up and listen to me, goddammit! Now, they're dead, and he's down here somewhere. If you want to get out of here alive, you do exactly as I tell you. What are we going to do? This better not be your idea of a joke, TJ. Do I look like I'm joking? Come on, let's go. Well, where a minute now? Where about Mike and Harriet? The last time I saw them, they were in the
1: engine room. You check the main shaft. I'll take tunnel six and meet you there. Howard.
0: You stay with the girls and wait for Please. Axel. Stay with Howard. What? No, Howard! Wait a minute! Howard, you watch the girls. Now the '80s
1: delivered so many great horror movies, but the year 1981 was a real, real gem of a year for not only the slasher movies but horror movies in general. Just to name drop a few of these movies, I mean the <laughs> list goes on and on. Yeah. But just some r- real classics in here that came out in 1981, Scanners, The Beyond, <laughs> The Howling, Deadly Blessing. We've got uh, sequels that did well, uh, Halloween 2, Friday the 13th Part 2, uh, Toby Hooper's The Fun House. Uh, we had Wolfen, uh, another sequel with The Omen 3, Madman, Just Before Dawn. The Burning, Burning, so good. Which uh, we could we could have easily swapped out the Burning with My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. <laughs> it's it had you know has a lot of notoriety and definitely a movie worth checking out if you haven't seen The Burning. If anything, for just some of the young uh, cast, Holly Hunter and mm-hmm. Jason Alexander, way way before yeah. <laughs> they became uh, who we know them as today. But yeah, just so many great horror movies that came out in 1981. I don't know what what's what was going on. What was what was the deal that it was like horror movies finally the studios all kind of got in on it and said, "Hey, people want to see these. They're making money. They're they're easy to to make as far as like not spending so much money." And it just really produced so many great creative horror films and these were all theatrically released. God, I wish I was a uh, had been old enough to go and see movies in the theater in 1981, but I was probably still uh, could barely uh, sleep (laughs) in the dark by myself.
2: Probably would have been really traumatized had you gone to see these at your age. You know, 1981, it had some strong, solid uh, horror movies to come out during that time. And it was also kind of continuing on. And I would say kind of amping up a, a a thing that was dying out at the time, a genre within the horror genre that was dying out that wouldn't become a thing until 2000. We had two great horror parodies. Well, okay, one great horror parody, that being Student Bodies. I love Student Bodies. And Saturday the 14th, the title alone, I mean, it's worth a viewing sometime, but if you haven't seen Student Bodies, if you like comedy horror go with that one, definitely. And this was also a time that not only were studios realizing that horror movies were cash cows, but this was also during the trend that leads into My Bloody Valentine, which is holiday-themed horror films. And there were a ton of them that were still going on at this point. Like I think even this year we had Graduation Day, which was another one um, of the holiday horrors. But Something about My Bloody Valentine just really set it apart. And also within this time, studios realizing that horror movies made so much money, Canada wasn't really known for putting out a a, a lot of films within the horror genre. But at this time, this is when there was the tax credit structure program within Canada where the government gave you partial funding in order to get your film made. We talked a little bit about that in American Werewolf in London and My Bloody Valentine also went right along with that it gave them an advantage within a horror movie game where you didn't need giant celebrities to be in your film all you needed was a really good story and really good effects or at least something that was passable at the time but it seemed like in 81 this was the beginning of so many people's careers and when I mean, we talked about before Rick Baker in American Werewolf, this was, you know, just his beginning. And the, and the same could be said for this film, too. But My Bloody Valentine just stands apart in amongst all of these films. There's a lot of great ones here. But the story in My Bloody Valentine, for me, is something very unique within the genre.
1: I do think that My Bloody Valentine borrowed from a few other movies that, that you know gained popularity, like oh, Friday sure. the Thirteenth, obviously, yeah. and, and Halloween, yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But yes, just right, right out of the gate, saying, "Hey, let's have this whole thing take place in a mining town, yeah. and have the characters instead of being you know sixteen and seventeen year old teens have them be working class, college age actors. And yeah, that's been done to death now. But at the time, 1981, when this movie came out, that was a pretty unique setting, uh, especially when you think about how many movies after My Bloody Valentine were the total reverse, where you always had like sort of very wealthy teens yeah. were, the, yeah. were sort of the the actors in these horror movies. You know, when you think of horror movies, you think of atmosphere. You know, how can we make this unique, creepy atmosphere in a mine? Just seems like a place where uh, it's dark, it's dank, it's just super dangerous. That right away, without there even being any horror elements to the movie, um, already kicks it off. Is is having this unique atmospheric vibe, and then throw in a killer with a legend.
2: <laughs> you ever notice that there's no sun in this film either? And I know that when they were filming, at least with uh, like the mine scenes, they would go down in the mine at the beginning of the day and it would be dark, obviously, down there. And then you'd come out at night and it would be dark outside. These actors were also living a life where they were just kind of experiencing darkness as well. And it adds to this oppressive feel. If anything, this movie feels to me like a really good cold night type of horror movie. It's a great october movie to watch
1: yeah this one really does uh feel very octoberish you know very overcast and and cold people are wearing coats yeah it doesn't feel like a a summertime horror movie this movie definitely didn't start this but it was one of the first few to do it and so many movies have copied it since but having this opening where we get our first kill Mm, there's like it sets up the stage and you see someone get killed and then we you know smash into the title card of the of the movie. Um, this one, I think, really <laughs> yeah. has one of the better versions of that where we're introduced to two lovers that are, are getting a little bit kinky with having. But a, you
2: think, like, is it two? You don't immediately know it's a man and a woman. You assume that it's two guys walking down in like suits. And then that's true. the unveiling oh, it's like this hot woman in her just in her bra. No boobs. There's no boobs in this movie. And you're like, oh, well, this is gonna get sexy time down in the mines, okay?
1: It turns deadly. (laughs) Also, setting up the the coal miner's outfit and the mask Mm -hmm. um, right away, giving you know, kind of showing the audience like, here's what you're in store for. This is we're not, we don't have to wait, you know, like in other movies where you know Jason didn't get his mask till
2: yeah Friday Thirteenth Part
1: Three. (laughs) We get right away. We we get this you know kind of creepy outfit. There is something to me about I, I I love a setup like that. It it to me it, it's the same thing with uh I know I'm kind of relating it to TV, but like a good action television show, you know, really uh, strong opening sequence yeah. before the opening music credit sequence comes on.
2: When that title card comes up too, it's really good. There's like a twinge of humor. Maybe it's just me, but there's a twinge of humor with that title card. It's animated. It's like there's a drop of blood coming out from the two hearts that make up the word bloody. There's just something that's charming about it that's like a little tongue-in-cheek.
1: And that the the woman who gets killed has this like sort of heart <laughs> tattoo on her chest. Yeah, um, that's what she gets stabbed yeah, through, of yeah. course.
2: Yeah. You know, another thing that I love about the story, how, how this unfolds, and again, yeah, this has happened in horror movies to come afterwards, but I love that we get the backstory immediately of who this killer is and we get it from this bartender we don't know anything about him other than he's not really a fan of his young clientele and is like you guys don't know what you're talking about you need to pay attention to the legend and I'm going to tell you everything right here and ruin your buzz we need it to understand what's happening with this film because like what I said in the synopsis. This is a new generation of minors who were just kids when Harry Warden, you know, went on this killing spree. So it's it's necessary to the plot. And it almost seems more important uh, to us as the viewer with with the main cast that we're following to follow this love triangle that's happening. But it's kind of misleading, but it also plays into the whole aspect of what's going on with the murders. And sometimes a, a love triangle can be annoying. At least I feel like it is in in movies to come in the 90s and things like that. It's kind of boring almost, but not with this film.
1: I love a movie with like a folklore. He went on a got stuck in the mind and um had to uh eat his coworkers to stay alive. Pretty gruesome stuff. What's good about it is like it kind of gets it in your mind already, you know, you're starting to think about this without having to see anything gruesome. And, you know, it's a suggestion, which this movie isn't light on gore. Um, you know there is a suggestion at times for violence, but this is a movie that if if you're a gore hound and you haven't seen it, I think it delivers. You know there there's some pretty. Um, if you're if you're someone who watches slasher movies for the kill, and I think that's we all were. You know you, you <laughs> don't mean, you don't you want some interesting kills in a slasher yeah. movie. I know it yeah. sounds messed up, but you know it's their slasher movies, and yeah. this one delivers. Um, I kind of wanted to go back real quick. You were talking about how this is a movie that doesn't show boobs, you know, doesn't have uh, sex in it. And that's just kind of circling back to another thing that this movie did that a lot of horror movies didn't. There was kind of a, you know, this was by 1981, 1982, a lot of horror movies were starting to get criticized for the exploitation of women. Siskel and Ebert even dedicated an entire episode to it, though I don't really agree. I think they yeah. were just sort of like firing off on movies that weren't well made because they, they sort of contradict themselves a little bit. There's a lot of movies that they admired that did the same things of (laughs) the movies that they were criticizing but this movie did a pretty good job of coming out in the early 80s and uh, again not really having to be like a big tna fest
2: and the, the female characters are relatively strong they're not relying upon men really for anything and there's not this damsel in distress feel everyone feels really equal and even with the love triangle at one point that character is Sarah she's like you know what f you both you know what this is just ridiculous I don't want to put up with this anymore yeah the female aspect of this film it's almost like you don't even notice it because it's something that's just how it should be because it seems like in so many horror movies it sticks out when you know it's the damsel in distress the woman that needs to be rescued or just straight up like violent against women specifically only women
1: there's sort of nothing worse when when you go back and you start viewing some of these early 80s slasher movies and they're just sort of a step above pornos (laughs) you know and you it's like nothing i could show out outside in my backyard during how yeah during october i could show my bloody valentine in my backyard and and not be worried about my neighbors like wondering what the hell we're doing over here
2: yeah right Another thing I appreciate as far as tropes go with horror films of this time and how My Bloody Valentine plays against a lot of those tropes is we have one heavy set. Uh, main actor, Hollis. And normally at this point in horror, and I mean, Jesus, all through the 80s, uh, all through the 90s, a lot of the times bigger actors are often the butt of jokes. And it's a lot of times, I mean, Chris Farley made an entire career out of being the butt of the joke and being the big guy in the room. But in this film, I love that Hollis, he's the leader of everybody. He's got a hot girlfriend. He's a pretty cool guy. And again, it's one of those things that You don't even notice it because it's just very normal. Like, it doesn't stand out. And only if you're looking at this through the lens of noticing how this movie stands out from other films at the time, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not happening. Another thing, there's no gay joke. And there's a full-on shower scene of a bunch of minors in a shower together. I was waiting for a gay joke. I'm like, I must have missed this the first time around. Yeah, no, none of that at all.
1: And there's also, too, the sort of old-school thriller approach of kind of having there be a lot of red herrings. You know, I mean, we've been told that there's a legend of (laughs) Harry, and a lot of the townspeople, like the sheriff, do feel that it is Harry. He's come back, and he's killing the teens. The movie also shifts in a way that kind of makes you eyeball certain people in the movie. And it it can be cheesy at times, but I do like—I like a good red herring. You know, I like— there being a little bit of mystery because it gives it it makes standing a little bit more of a payoff especially if you got to reveal who the killer is. I love the Friday the 13th movies, but the reason why they become just such slash fests and some of the movies aren't as good as others is because there's nothing else to learn. You know who this person is, people know who this person is and they're just going around killing people and that can get boring and you know, I do love a movie that has lets there be a little bit of a mythos about the character. Yeah. And, you know, and if it is just some random person killing, I want to see who they are at the end and I want to find <laughs> out why I want a motive.
2: Yeah. I want to know with the foreshadowing, if it's done properly, you can throw it in as many times as you want you know whether it's the character of sylvia being picked up by her head by her boyfriend and you know they kiss that's how he kisses her that's also how she dies later in the movie or the character of patty describing her valentine's day dress to sarah and she's like cut down to here slid up there i might not get out alive like it's hilarious it's so funny and you also were like, uh-oh, Patty's totally going to die at the end of this one. Yeah, the tropes in this one, there are things that are typical to the horror genre, like the sheriff and the mayor deciding, let's not tell anybody about this murder that's happening, because that's a good plan. Like, what are you talking about? No, don't do that. There are some things that go right along with a typical horror film, but for the most part... This one is different from, and, and maybe, hey, maybe it's just because it's Canadian. Yeah. They're nicer.
1: This movie, uh, for such a low budget, I mean, they really stretched their dollars out, um, probably a lot thanks to the Canadian government. Uh, what a country. Universal healthcare, and they fund uh, horror movies. I mean, what's going on over there? Not their priority straight. But uh, filmmakers have always said it's best to start out with a horror movie because they're they're low budget, low stakes, but generally can turn a profit because there's an eager horror fan base that will watch horror movies. But that doesn't mean that these horror movies aren't hard to make. Generally, there's so many problems that horror movies face that, that have no budget because they mainly are dealing with special effects like practical effects that take a lot of time, don't always take a lot of money, but still take some skill to pull it off and make it look realistic on screen. This movie kind of went a step further with making things difficult for the shoot because they decided they're not going to shoot on any sound stages. They're going to shoot in an actual mine. That became a huge issue because... It, it, in one way it was great because they did find this great mine that was no longer in use and the people that owned the mine decided to clean the whole mine it
2: was like the whole uh, town yeah basically. They, they, they cleaned
1: up the whole town and they wanted the mine to be lived in and look like there were still people working in it so when the production crew showed up and went down there they were pretty shocked to see how uh clean everything looked they actually someone and the crew, uh, I think the director, said it, it looked like Disney World. It was so clean and nice. And so they had to then go in and dirty it all up to make it look like a, a functioning mine that had been around for many, many years.
2: Which is just going to add more to the budget. When George Maholka, you know, scouted out this location, it was perfect. I can't imagine getting there and being like, what the F happened to this? This is uh, we we." i don't even know now we got to make it look dirty again but you know it's good canadian manners you know you got a big budget movie coming to town of course you want to make it look great i think the mine had been shut down for a good six months so there hadn't been that much attention paid to it and they were considering turning it into a museum so i could imagine the townsfolk just being like well hey we needed to clean it up anyway but that's not going to be what this film needs
1: now once they uh got over the issue of the mine being too clean. They dirtied up and got ready for production. That was really just the beginning of their problems because one thing you need to make a movie is light and it's pitch black in a mine. And there's also not a lot of available electricity So you're having to bring all this gear, all this equipment down underground in a very
2: unstable, unsafe environment. Like, for instance, the coal residual from the mines, even though it was closed six months prior, it wasn't insulated and there was still a methane buildup, which is something that miners had to deal with when it was an active mine. But it happened fairly regularly. Like on cloudy days when there's low barometric pressure, this is when, you know, the air is heavy. The methane that's emitted from the mine just doesn't have anywhere to escape, so it creates this buildup. And this is bad. You as a person cannot be down there. It's not good for the equipment. And Maholka said that this happened at least six times while they were filming Now, going hand in hand with that, now you can imagine if there's a methane buildup, obviously it's not good for humans to be down there. But this is also not good for lighting equipment. And when you're down in the pitch dark, you need lights in order to make a movie. And not just any lights. This is a camera that uses light to capture an image. So it's different than just using our eyes. So just think about that. Like any spark from a light, from something being plugged in, any spark could cause an explosion, like no joke. And an explosion... That's, I mean, that's the whole premise for how this legend of this movie happened. There was an explosion, right? So obviously this is very bad. And when doing research, Maholka and the crew realized that they couldn't use anything over 25-watt bulbs. And this is very dim. I mean, a 25-watt bulb is dim for a normal room in your house. So there was a mass scramble, right? You can only use 25-watt bulbs, and there's only so many that you can really use, you know, when you're lighting a film. So Maholka thought, okay let's use let's find the fastest lenses in order to capture the most amount of light and using the fastest lenses also meant that you added more expenses to your budget okay there's that but it still wasn't good enough so they went for the fastest film stock possible And that wasn't good enough. So they had the fastest, fastest of everything possible. The only thing left to do was um, a lab process. And they had to figure out how to... uh, It's just called like pushing. Like you film for that day and then you take those dailies and you send it off to the lab to have this process done. And at this time... In 1980, 81, there was only one lab in North America that would do this, and it was called Chemtone, and it was in New York. So you have the addition of sending it off to a lab and then the actual processing at the lab. I mean, just to film in the mines, this added so much more expenses than they had even planned on.
1: And I'm imagining very terrifying, too, because this is back before you had monitors that you could see yeah, you know, you, you don't you couldn't really see what you were shooting, and also too not not knowing you know if the film comes back, even with the lab pushing the exposure. Are you still going to have a bright enough image that you can tell what the hell's going on? I don't feel like there's any shots in the movie that you can't see what's happening because it's so dark. Whereas other horror movies, especially nighttime exterior shots where movies have been shot in the woods and stuff and they had little lighting. There's times where you almost can't tell. You're just seeing like silhouettes of things.
2: And from what I read up on this, that once they received those dailies back from the lab, I mean, this was a super stressful time uh, just waiting for that after the processing. But after they got a few back, they started trusting the process and were like, "Okay, this looks as good as it's going to look. And just kept shooting like they did and it ended up working out really well.
1: Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll um, go to another clip from My Bloody Valentine. We get back, we'll talk about the origins of the movie, the release, the reception, and the remake.
0: Henninger! I'll be waiting in hell for you! (gasps) Harry, Harry, I'm coming. This whole fucking town is going to die. We're coming back, you bastards! Sarah, be my bloody valentine. Daddy gone away. Harry Warden made you
1: Now let's dip back into the infancy of My Bloody Valentine real quick here. This movie, uh, like many horror movies around this time, started with like we said in the beginning, this idea of, you know, you can make a movie on low budget, there's an audience for it. Generally, they can make their money back, if not make some profit. After Halloween became a big success, Sean S. Cunningham had the brilliant idea to say, hey, let's take uh, the title Friday the 13th, the spooky superstitious holiday, and let's make a movie with just that title. And that movie made a gang of money. And so, After those two movies came out, Halloween and Friday the 13th, it was like, what holiday can we exploit, (laughs) you know, whether it be Easter or Thanksgiving or whatever? And so Valentine's Day became ripe for the picking. I'm glad that they didn't just go for Valentine's Day. Yeah.
2: You know? Yeah. My
1: Bloody Valentine is a pretty kick-ass title. So much so that even uh, an equally kick-ass band, unknowingly... (laughs) yeah use the same title to create their band name, My Bloody Valentine. Check out the album Loveless if you haven't.
2: As the leader of that band has said, he had no idea that there was a movie by the same title as My Bloody Valentine. I can't help but think that the band played some part in the resurgence of interest in My Bloody Valentine, the the movie. It just, I, I mean, you're searching around, you're going to come across those two things. I, I know that I have. So let's get into a little bit of how the story of My Bloody Valentine came about. So director George Maholka was contractually obligated to Cinepix and My Bloody Valentine producer John Dunning to create two films, but the first one uh, fell through. He never said what that first film was or if that ever came to fruition, Um, but the second was My Bloody Valentine, but it wasn't called that at the time. It was initially called The Secret and written by Stephen Miller. Maholka got a one-sheet synopsis of this film, and and Maholka said to Dunning, you know, this sounds all fine and good, but I've never directed a horror movie before. Do you have faith in me that I can do this? And Dunning said, you know, you hadn't directed a comedy before you did Pickup Summer, and that turned out okay. So yeah, I've totally got faith in you. So with that, they were off to make this film, and Dunning hired LA writer John Beard to flesh out this story, and George Maholka was consulted on the script. I, I don't know, like, how much... He really helped write the plot, but he definitely consulted on it. But at the same time the script was being written, he was out scouting for locations for the film. By the time scouting had started, Maholka had a scene-by-scene that Beard had kind of gotten ready in like three weeks. Not everything was you know, done with the script, but Dunning had approved of what was going on so far. So Mahulk is out scouting for locations and comes across the Sydney mines in Nova Scotia, Canada and thinks, I mean, this is just perfect. We already talked a little bit about the mines earlier and just, you know, this this town that looked economically kind of downtrodden, but was very insular. And it just, uh, it was exactly the vision that he had for this. So with the location secured and the script basically almost written, the ball for My Bloody Valentine started rolling about July, August of 1980. Now about this time, Maholka's, you know, thinking, cool, we got this. I feel pretty relaxed. I'm ready to go. But right about that time was when producer John Dunning said, oh, and by the way, you're going to need to have this film done by January 23rd because we got to have prints ready. We got to have everything done for marketing in order to get this film out for a Valentine's release. So upon hearing this, Maholka gets a fire lit under his butt and knows everything's got to get started pretty quickly in the hopes of beginning to start shooting in September. So he get started with the casting process. He's looking in Montreal, Toronto, and Canada, and just working from what's called a beat sheet, which is just important plot points in the screenplay because the screenplay is not completely finished just yet. He knows that with a budget and kind of the vision that he has for this film, that inexperienced actors are going to work better, at least he hopes, you know, um, for, for the vibe of this film. And he wants actors who look like they've been friends before, that they've known each other their entire lives and face it we've talked about this before in in other episodes where, you know, certain stories are gonna work if You can't pinpoint someone, oh yeah, it's the guy from that movie or the lady from, yeah, she was in this. That's kind of what Maholka wanted for this film. He wanted believable faces. It was like people that you grew up with or that you knew and that you could believe had been friends their entire lives. I think the only main character involved that Maholka wanted to stand out was the character of T.J. Hanniger, who's the guy that comes back, the friend of all of these people that left and tried to make a different life for himself, left his girlfriend behind and failed out somewhere west and, you know, came back kind of begrudgingly and is now living the life of, of being a minor and his girlfriends now with the other hot guy in town. (laughs) And, you know, there's that that, uh, love triangle tension that we mentioned before. But you need kind of this red herring or this standout character to kind of make you feel like, oh, is this the guy? Is this the guy that's doing all the killings? The one outlier of the group? But it was important as far as how all of the characters interact with each other.
1: And yeah, Paul Kelman, who plays TJ, he's got the handsome, rugged, like Hollywood kind of look to him, but also at the same time looks like, uh, the guy that's working at the gas station next door.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, though he didn't really do too many movies, uh, he is in another really original and strange horror movie. It's like a rock and roll devil type horror movie called Black Roses, which I haven't seen in a long time. I, I I've got, never
2: I, seen it, but man. I, I got
1: to revisit that one.
2: It Just from what I was reading about it and just seeing screen captures was like, I need to find this immediately.
1: And the similar case of an uh, actor who's handsome but not too handsome, doesn't look too Hollywood, looks like they could be working in this town, was um, Neil Affleck, who played Axel, who was the jealous uh, current lover uh, in the love triangle, who's jealous of TJ, who's back in town, who used to date his um, current girlfriend.
2: And I really like Neil Affleck's performance in this film. There's some points when I feel... Like it it's a little overdramatic or overacting. But upon a couple of rewatches, because Axel and TJ are the supposed maybe this guy is the killer, maybe he's not, I don't know. Upon a few rewatches, I'm like, you know what? It kind of makes sense that Axel is acting the way he is when he like enters a room and he's like, Harry Warden's back, everyone's dying, everyone needs to leave, you're all gonna be murdered. Like he enters and says that I feel like it's a little crazy at the time, but honestly, when all of your friends are being murdered, you know, I think I might act like that yeah. a little bit too. <laughs> so yeah, Neil Affleck and Paul Kelman were great um, as the leads. And not to be outdone, Lori Hallier, who plays Sarah, the love interest entertaining TJ and Axel, man, what a strong character she is. And Maholka purposefully wanted a female lead who was kind of towards the end of the film kind of turns into a little bit of an action hero and which is awesome and not something that was super common becoming a little bit more popular in that final girl feel um, of early 80s horror films but man she really takes the reins at the end of this film and all throughout doesn't really put up with being treated like property Um, you know the guys can treat her like that but she can also say f you to both of them at the same time so she's wonderful in this and certainly went on to have a career after this my bloody valentine for a lot of these actors this was their first film and laurie hallier was one of those people uh cynthia dale who plays patty man every time i always think patty's gonna make it out of this one and when she bites it she's the final kill at the end of the movie i it's never not shocking i know that it's coming but um, Patty is another favorite in this for me, and this was a giant move in her career as well. Now, Don Franks, who is the the chief, the, the main policeman who we follow in this film, he was the actor out of everyone who was known and had had a career before this film and was kind of like the name that could be used to sell this film and certainly does a wonderful job in this movie. I loved learning that his hair is a wig, and underneath that wig is a very long ponytail because he's proud of his heritage and good for him that he never cut that thing off like that's amazing but I would have never guessed that that was a wig ever I don't know Justin you
1: I did not know that
2: it is a, an amazing wig and that's what he told George Moholka when they met for the first time and Maholka saw his hair and he was like I don't think this is gonna work and he's like don't worry I got the best wigs in the business he wasn't lying so man, this is such an ensemble film. Um, Two other standouts for me are Keith Knight, who plays Hollis, and Alf Humphreys, Howard, the, the cut up of the group. Um, Hollis is the leader I already mentioned before. He's the, the leader of everybody. And, and Howard, man, his corny jokes work in this film. He's the bit of comedy relief that we have. And I know him from countless TV shows in the 80s and 90s. Alf Humphreys, Wonderful actor, appeared in X-Files a few times. I always got to slip it in there somehow. Um, and Keith Knight, who his face I am very familiar with from Meatballs, and certainly went on to many films after those two. You've also got Thomas Kovacs, who played Mike, Helene Udi, Sylvia. Oh, Sylvia, your death, sweetie. It is really good in the unrated edition. You got cheated in that theatrical edition. And Mabel. Poor Mabel, what a great death, too. But Mabel, what a sweetheart. In love with the chief, you didn't make it very long. But man, you were great in this film. You know, we've spent so much time talking about the killer in this film. One might think that maybe it was Neil Affleck or Paul Kelman playing the miner that's killing everybody. But it's not, folks. It was an actor named Peter Cowper, and this was actually his only film.
1: I thought you did a pretty good job.
2: Man, he's got that Michael Myers vibe that's yeah. just unstoppable. Sort of
1: like very looming and just hanging there. And
2: like, What is he, nine good, feet good, tall?
1: Yeah, and good movements.
2: Yeah, just his presence in this film is, uh, I don't want to run across him in an alley, let alone a mine where I can't escape from. But this cast for a, a, a group of relative unknowns really make everything in the My Bloody Valentine universe feel completely real.
1: And it was a bit of a mystery for a while to the cast, uh, who the killer was. I don't think they got to meet the actual uh, actor that played Harry, the the killer.
2: It's crazy. They didn't get the last three pages of the script and supposedly didn't know um, until they were actually filming the, those last scenes. I think Paul Kelman and Neil Affleck had an idea, but I don't know. Every actor that's been interviewed, everyone said, nope, none of us knew.
1: And I'll tell you, in the event that you haven't seen My Bloody Valentine, <laughs> even though it came out 40 years ago, we're not going to spoil the ending for you. Yep. We'll let it be a mystery.
2: Yep. I think that's only appropriate. Another thing that added to the dramatics of this film is the score. Paul Zaza was the composer for this film and did all of the music involved. That that includes the country music that you hear and a couple bar scenes and even the ballad of Harry Warden that we hear over the ending credits. The music in this film is very intentional, and I think it's something that could be missed unless you're paying a lot of attention, but George Maholka wanted every song in this film to have a special meaning. Uh, If there were lyrics involved, it needed to be pertaining to what was happening in the story.
1: I think that's great, the director said, even in the bar sequences where they could have just pulled up, because he said back then, rights to music weren't as expensive as they are now so they could have gotten something familiar like a a country western song to play in the bar but instead he wanted everything to be authentic even all the way down to some of the lyrics uh maybe reflecting on things that are going on in the story or within the characters and so they created even original standards like rock music for the movie as well as the compositions and i think it's kind of cool that there's a actual The Ballad of Harry Warden song (laughs) at the end of the movie.
2: It really seemed like Maholka had such a well-intentioned vision for this film. And being a horror film, I don't know, if you're just a a casual viewer of it, you might not think that. But there really was a lot of heart, no pun intended there, behind everything, every little detail in this film. And I think that that's why when it came down to the time for this film to go to the MPAA for its rating, it became a a, a much bigger issue as far as uh, Maholka's artistic vision. Once this film was sent off, the soundtrack, everything had been mixed in, everything edited together. I mean, it was pretty... It, it was still a working print of the film. They were doing fine-tuning, but it was sent off to the MPAA to get its first rating. And, man, Jack Valenti, who ran the MPAA, I remember exactly what he looked like from, like, an early age. There was a cartoon in the 90s that used to make fun of him for uh, how strict he was about the rating system. And he ripped this film apart and said, "Mohoka." I think has this quote burned into his brain. Um, the quote was, tell those Canadians to take their movie and go home. This is an X-rated film. I, I mean, I guess with Valenti's narrow vision at the time, it was. But, I mean, I don't know. Jack Valenti has a uh, interesting history that's not worth going into right now. But this sparked this entire fight with the MPAA, which is, you know, if you really love this movie... You love the theatrical release, but then the unrated edition, the actually Maholka's vision, you're like, that is clearly a better film.
1: Yeah, I, I like the uncut version much better. And so many directors had just nightmares with the MPAA you know, making them cut certain things. And you hear so many stories from directors where they say, you know, the MPA said they didn't like a particular scene. So the director like resubmitted it, making no changes. And yeah. then they're <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's much better now. So just sort of shows how they were just like finding things to cut for no reason. There just wasn't a lot of validity to their decision making when saying what directors should cut and not cut out of their movies. But I'm glad that this uncut version does exist and that you are able to see it today.
2: When this initial fight happened, Cinepix and Paramount just kind of went nuts because... They had invested so much money into this film. There's no way that they were going to drop it at this point. But Maholka had to cut out entire scenes, not only trim down scenes to be, you know, eight to 12 frames of of cutting out something that, that is graphic or gory. I think that the uncut edition is at least four minutes longer. I mean, that's a considerable amount when you're talking about a movie that's just over an hour and 20 minutes. But this was a mass reforming of the entire film and had to be recut. And when you're on such a time constraint, when this had to be turned in at a specific time, and Maholka said it was a nightmare, that basically he and the folks that were trying to recut this film were just living 24-hour days, completely awake, trying to meet this deadline. And they went through, I think he said, four rounds of arguments with the MPAA, just back and forth, back and forth. And... Finally, the theatrical release is what you see, but Maholka had his problems with that, and I think his heart was a little crushed, and he remembers, you know, making it and remembers everything that was a technical achievement and filming and working with these actors, but the actual end product he wasn't happy with um, until many, many years later. I think he even called it my anemic Valentine. That's such a bummer, but I'm I'm glad to know that he appreciates it now but he's probably extremely happy that the uncut edition is out there and people can see for the most part um, what he intended the film to be.
1: And they did make their deadline. This movie did come out in time for Valentine's Day, though it seems Valentine's Day didn't really seem to be a great um, (laughs) time to release a horror movie. Didn't really do much business. Uh, The movie Cost around three million dollars to make. It made just under six million, which to Paramount was considered a failure because they were hoping to have a success like they did with their Friday Thirteenth series. And so the movie, um, you know, did find an audience eventually, like so many of the movies that we cover on this podcast. Many many years through video cassette, through cable, the movie became more well known, especially as being one of the better slashers of the eighties. And fairly recently, uh, Scream Factory put out... great double disc Blu-ray of My Bloody Valentine that includes both the theatrical cut and the uncut version um, but there's also a great 35 year anniversary videotaped Q&A that was done with the cast and crew and this movie has created a rabid fan base of people who love this movie and that the movie's still being shown um, in theaters and special screenings and that's, that's always great to hear because especially when you hear about a movie getting cut and not being able to get the vision you want out but but to be able to not only get the version that you wanted on the screen eventually, but also that a movie that wasn't successful when it came out eventually finds an audience that love it and keep the movie alive.
2: I'm thankful that this happened for this film. Also learning from that uh, anniversary of the cast that a lot of those actors still stay in touch And that, I mean, it's got to be a formative time if this is, you know, your first big role or, or first movie in general. And this film was also a launching pad for so many people who worked on the film who were locals, actually. And by Maholka hiring many locals here to be, you know, PAs or people to help with the set design, that was the first job in the industry that they had. And Ever since this movie in subsequent years, he's run into people that worked on this film. And, you know, they say, you were responsible for getting me into the movie business. And that's got to really feel good if you're George Maholka.
1: Now, after the 2000s, uh, Lionsgate Films did eventually buy the rights up to My Bloody Valentine and immediately decided, you know, what we need to do. We need to make a remake. This is when... There was a big boom for horror remakes of movies that came out in the 70s and 80s, so it just seemed like a no-brainer to remake this movie. Lindsay, you and I sat down together, and we watched uh, My Bloody Valentine, the remake that came out in 2009. Not only did we watch the remake, but we also watched it in 3D, which when it came out in theaters, um, it, it was released in, in 3D And I got to say, you know, I had seen the movie when it came out. Mm -hmm. I retained almost nothing of the movie. (laughs) I couldn't remember any of it. It was just like watching the movie for the first time again, which doesn't say uh, a lot of great things about a movie that I remembered almost nothing, but... I didn't hate the movie. I did find it to be fairly enjoyable. But at the at the same time, I understood why it, when we when we finished it up, why it was kind of forgettable, because there isn't anything particularly great or memorable about the movie, though um, there is a good performance by Tom Atkins, who I always love seeing him choose scenery on screen.
2: Yeah, Tom Atkins is wonderful. Every time he pops up in a film, I can't help but think that he was cast in that role f- For that reason. For the movie as a whole, the extended nude scene is pretty memorable. It's probably the most memorable thing about that film. I've never seen something like that on screen before. And like you, I'd seen this movie before, but I didn't even remember that. I don't know why, but I will never forget that scene. It's like a uh,
1: 360 of the original for nudity. (laughs) They're like, hey, they they showed no nudity in the uh, original. What we're going to do is we're going to have like a five-minute scene where a naked woman is battling somebody.
2: I mean, you know, I'll give it for originality. I've never seen that before. Sure, great, but I think overall I was more entertained by the 3D factor. And 3D movies really aren't my jam. But for what it was, it was a very entertaining movie.
1: Yeah, I'm a big 3D fan, so I was. Um, <laughs> it was it was right there in my in my comfort zone.
2: Maybe it's just the 3D movies that I've seen haven't been the greatest. I,
1: I, you got to come over. I'm gonna show you some more 3D movies. All
2: right. If they don't, you tried to show me one with animals, and if the dogs are over. It's yeah. done. Stan? I've
1: got some good non-animal okay. 3D movies we can watch.
2: Stan can't hang with the animals.
1: Well, let's stop there. We'll come back with some final thoughts on My Bloody Valentine. But let's continue this uh, 1981 <laughs> horror movie slasher train with our picks of the week. Happy birthday to me. Lindsay, that was your pick. I did The Prowler. What can you tell me about happy birthday to me?
2: Well, when it comes to early 80s slashers, at this point in my life, after seeing so many, you've got to have a little more than your average slash and gash to make me want to do a rewatch. And Happy Birthday to Me is a prime example. I've always liked this slasher for its absurdness, twists, and oddly, and, and only in hindsight, I've noticed how mean it is. And that doesn't sound like me at all, but all of the murders have this twinge of humor. You're not really invested in the characters who die. They're all popular kids, and in horror, you know, if you're popular and a jerk, bye bye There are a couple of layers in this revenge tale of a movie, and your mind might just uh, explode when thinking about how many layers there are by the time you reach the film's conclusion. It's not rocket science, but not only is Happy Birthday to Me a mystery which keeps unfolding and the viewer guessing, but it also has a deeply scarred psychological aspect to the story. Call it me having a concussion, but I always dig movies about forgotten memories and throw in some past trauma and you've got yourself a horror movie set up. Feeling like one is going to go mad because of a traumatic brain injury, the helplessness and questioning of it all, this adds such an intense undercurrent. Our lead in this movie is Virginia, a softer, non-bully type who's in the so-called top ten of the popular crowd of her senior class. There's not much to establish this group of popular kids other than they're the ones in the crosshairs of this mysterious, brutal killer of the picture. However you slice it, the psychological brain game this movie turns into makes it stand out in the slasher genre. This movie predates the immensely engaging psychological mess of sleepaway camp, and also shares that movie's emotional baggage that comes along with pre-existing trauma. Instead of giving us an opening to later explain how the killer got the way that they are, this plot weaves in flashbacks from Virginia's past. We know her mother was unhinged, desperately wanting her daughter to be popular, she despised her husband, and obviously these flashbacks make one immediately suspect Virginia as the killer. She even begins to suspect herself, which is a very smart, extra twisted plot point to write into this script. This movie loves to mislead the audience, and for those of you who are no stranger to the constant parade of red herrings, like the old Scooby-Doo cartoons, or even in My Bloody Valentine, Happy Birthday to Me will leave you completely turned around. When the ending is finally at arm's length, you're totally thrown off. By today's standards, this film's conclusion has happened countless times in subsequent slashers. But in 1981, I could see the end of this film being polarizing. One could totally be surprised or leave you scratching your head. But for all the chaotic psychological buildup, I'm really happy with how Happy Birthday to Me wraps up, even if it does seem out there. It's a fun rewatch, and to see if you can catch any indicators of the twist ending you're headed for. If a slasher can build up tension, even if I'm anticipating something terrible is about to happen, that's what's cool in my book. And while it has its fair share of jump scares, it's not what this film is primarily about. The most influential plot motivator is about Virginia's struggle to remember emotional and physical trauma from her recent past. It amps up the mystery game and makes the film feel more developed than you might expect from a slasher. However you feel about this movie, it deserves a lot of credit for trying a little harder. Kind of similar to how My Bloody Valentine tried harder as well, and it should come as no surprise that this Canadian slasher was also produced by John Dunning and Andre Link, who did My Bloody Valentine, as well as sharing an uncredited screenwriting role for John Beard. Happy Birthday to Me was certainly part of the massive holiday explosion of horror films that we talked about in discussion one birthdays being the most universally relatable of them all. And while it could be chalked up to yet another entry in holiday horror, it's worth mentioning that Happy Birthday to Me was written and in pre-production before Friday the 13th or Prom Night were even released, leading one to think that maybe Halloween had more of an influence over this one. Of course, there were significant rewrites to the ending, but in the spirit of not giving away this one, I mean, you can't give it away. Um, The ending packs a real punch and leaves our final girl like she's never been seen before. Before I close this out, for all of the makeup, special effects lovers, and gore hounds out there, Happy Birthday to Me is a real fun one. And by fun, I mean brutal and crafty. The barbell to the next scene, the motorcycle wheel and scarf, all the throat slashing. There's so much throat slashing. Though you're really trying to solve the mystery of who the killer is, one thing is for sure. These killings are about punishment and revenge. And don't get it twisted. I don't mean torturous. These murders are very personal, which only adds to the perverse nature of not knowing the perpetrator of these intimate acts of violence. But this is an equal opportunity killer here. No woman-hating or reckless boob flashes for this 80s slasher. Another note, don't watch this film for any accuracy of how things actually happen in the world. Just let this movie be what it is. It's a pretty engaging, twisted horror flick that's totally fun to watch with your horror hound friends.
1: You have to say, this was a really uh, exciting revisit for this movie. And uh, I had forgotten that uh, J. Lee Thompson had directed this movie in Mm -hmm. kind of a strange uh, movie in his filmography because he was just known as like a sort of a tough and gruff action director, did a lot of Charles Bronson movies. (laughs) Um, But this movie is really well-directed. You can really tell there was some craft behind it. It wasn't just a thrown-together slasher flick.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really glad that you liked Happy Birthday to Me. I was so happy to watch Prowler. I got to watch that, too, and I I can't wait to hear you talk about it.
1: Yeah, Prowler was a movie that uh, wasn't a movie that I was familiar with back in the day. It was a movie that I probably only saw maybe 10 years ago, I had read about it, that it was uh, had developed a pretty big cult following, though I don't think many people knew of The Prowler when it first came out. It didn't do very well and was released independently in 1981. I, I was torn to do this movie because uh, though this movie pairs well with My Bloody Valentine, they're so similar <laughs> in their style and tone and storyline. In some ways, they're the same movie. It's kind of bizarre. Also, the killer dresses in this sort of World War II outfit. Garb where his face is covered and um, uses a pitchfork, and very similar to the killer in My Bloody Valentine. But the story, uh, as I said, as well, um, you know, we open on the past um, in the 40s. A woman is breaking up with her uh, boyfriend via letter because he's uh, off to sea fighting in World War II. Very original opening. Not too many slasher movies start uh, during uh, World War II, but um, a year later, She's got a new boyfriend. They're at a graduation dance in 1945. Her and her boyfriend are slain with a pitchfork. We can only guess that it's her jilted ex-lover. Well, then we cut to 1980. Now we're back in the 80s swing of things. Um, and there's a killer on the loose. It's the anniversary of when this woman was killed the night of the dance. Slowly, one by one, these high school students are being stalked by this killer, again, dressed in the sort of World War II garb with... All kinds of different uh, tools at his arsenal do, to to uh, maim and kill these high schoolers. The kills in this movie, even by slasher standards, I feel, are pretty hardcore. They were done by Tom Savini, who worked in the Friday Thirteenth movies. Who worked with George Romero, has been known to doing pretty graphic slasher special effects. Uh, He does claim this to be his best work, and I can understand why. Um, There are a few kills in this movie that I think are almost too mean-spirited. They're pretty rough to watch, uh, particularly one scene where a woman is swimming in a swimming pool, and as she gets out on the ladder this killer like kicks her in the face which is strange because that seems almost more traumatic than her getting killed underwater but the kick in the face is something that i've not seen um in too many movies and just to see somebody uh just climb out of a a, a pool and get immediately kicked in the face and then slashed underwater is a it's probably the one of the more memorable kills in any slasher movie that I've ever seen. I don't want to give away the uh, twist here. You know, they're always. This is one of those movies that does have a twist, and we find out a motive of why this killer is doing what they're doing. Um, but I do give this movie credit in the same way that. Uh, My Bloody Valentine, it takes place somewhere that we're not normally used to seeing a slasher movie. Uh, It takes place in New Jersey, sort of a Cape Cod type looking setting. Uh, The movie I think is a little bit long in the tooth at times. There's not a ton of character development. So yeah, it does feel a little bit long at times, but uh, the action and the intensity does ramp up in the last 25 or 30 minutes. And uh, I think it's definitely worthwhile. This was a movie that was released Independently, which is strange, I would have thought this was a movie that would gotten scooped up by a studio and for, you know, early 1980s, really like seems like a movie that they would have tried to put out there, but um, it was an oversaturated market in 1981. There were a lot of movies coming out, and this one didn't get a lot of audiences in front of it. But if you haven't heard of this one or if you haven't seen it, it's totally worth your while, especially if you're a fan of the slasher genre, especially if you're a fan of the slasher genre, specifically in the early 80s. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Also directed by Joseph Zito, who... Um, arguably directed the best uh, Friday 13th series, part four, um, the final chapter.
2: I really enjoyed this movie. I hadn't seen it before. It gave me a lot of the same feelings that My Bloody Valentine did as far as kills go. That I was disturbed and very impressed with how well done they were for 1981. That just that they looked so real and believable and yeah just plausible that they could happen that way specifically the one that has stuck with me has been the the pitchfork in the shower I want someone to explain to me how that one was done because it I she's moving on it and I just it looks I don't get it
1: some pretty realistic effects
2: yeah no wonder coming from Tom Savini but yeah. yeah thanks for telling me about this one.
1: Oh yeah well those are our picks of the week happy birthday to me and the prowler we'll keep on going here here's your Murray moment
0: Chicks think me, because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so structure. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun!
2: Every time Halloween rolls around, it's nothing short of a miracle when I find a Murray connection to our main feature. And I've consciously stayed away from talking about Billy's marriages, his kids, you know, the personal aspects of his life. Because one, there's not a ton of information out there. And two, these are aspects of his life that are ongoing and kind of pointless to speculate anything about. However... That's not the case with this story. I've known this for a little while, but not really the full details until I came across this really great Rolling Stone piece about when Billy and his first wife, Mickey Kelly, were married. Tying love into the theme of My Bloody Valentine is a decent enough connection, but the better one is that Billy and Mickey were married one day after My Bloody Valentine was due to be completed for the studio in 1981. Alright, there's your connection, but that's not the best part of this story. Billy and Mickey Kelly had been on and off dating for well over a decade, going back to their days in Chicago and Wilmette, Illinois. Billy went to high school with Mickey's sister, which was how the two met and eventually became sweethearts. But by this point in 81, Mickey had worked as a talent coordinator on the Dick Cavett show and the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. But there's something special to know that these two were friends well before either were plugged into the industry. Being on and off for so long during life-changing experiences, it's impossible to think that they never thought about marriage, not that either one was necessarily opposed to it. So on January 24th in 81, Billy had decided this was going to be the day that they were going to get married. His plan was to drive from the San Fernando Valley to Vegas and have a shotgun wedding. He even asked two previously married in Vegas friends to help him out with the planning. So he goes to pick up Mickey, finds her in a terrible mood, the only thing that she wants is Mexican food, not to get married. Well, then Bill's in a crap mood, so he starts spacing out while he's driving, he pulls the car over, neither person is talking to the other. I figured tonight was the night, Bill told Rolling Stone in 81. This was the night I'd chosen to take her and marry her, and she was in one of the ugliest moods I'd ever seen her in. Mickey was not having any of her boyfriend's antics, but eventually, you know, she gave in, though admittedly she wanted to pick a fight with him. He planned this thing out, she told Rolling Stone, and I eventually thought, ah, I'll just go with it, let's do it. So off they went, on their five-hour drive across the Mojave Desert, listening to Ry Cooter with a bottle of booze along for the ride. Billy brought a tape with him, envisioning this grand event that they'd exchange vows while Pavarotti's Ave Maria was playing during their ceremony. But by 4.30 a.m., when everything was underway, the tape had played well past what Billy had planned out. And though it sounds really hurried and not ideal, Bill does describe it as a beautiful and touching ceremony. And although I'm going to venture off from the date connection to my bloody Valentine here, I feel like I have to finish the wedding story of Billy and Mickey because there's a little bit more. Now, this Vegas stunt wasn't going to sneak past any of the family involved, especially when you're talking about a group of Catholics. So two months after they'd already tied the knot, Billy and Mickey found themselves back in their hometown of Wilmette at the church where Billy was baptized and being married by none other than Sister Nancy Murray, Billy's sister, whom we've talked about in at least two previous Murray moments. Mostly relatives and close friends were the only ones in the house for this second nuptial event, but of course, Billy was running late. Everyone was sitting there waiting at the church, and then Lucille Murray, Bill's mom, heard that her son couldn't find a shirt back at home. As the family lived just a few blocks away from the church, Mrs. Murray got instructions back to her son on where the shirt was, and he rolled in about 20 minutes later, looking perfect for the part. So who would have ever guessed, I know that this was like a real big journey I just took you on, but who would have ever guessed that the marriage of Mickey and Billy coincided with the due date for this heartfelt horror film, My Bloody Valentine? Only this guy, right here. Your guide to the strangest ways of connecting Mr. Murray to all of our main features.
1: I gotta say I'm impressed with your challenge <laughs> to uh connect my bloody Valentine to Bill Murray.
2: Yep. I mean I think that's that's a pretty decent one. If it's if if the rules are you just gotta connect it somehow, you know.
1: Even even when it's a stretch, I think you still make it work.
2: <laughs> I should have been a lawyer with how convincing I am.
1: Well, thank you for that Murray moment, as always.
2: I love the deep dives, Justin.
1: So final thoughts here on my bloody Valentine this was a movie that surprisingly didn't get a sequel you know so many horror movie slasher movies got like part fives and part sixes sometimes part eights and part nines and <laughs> my bloody valentine in a lot of ways is set up for a sequel i won't spoil the ending again because we promised we wouldn't do that earlier yeah. but you'd almost kind of think that the sequel would follow this um but it never really did come to fruition
2: And of course, it was going to be dependent upon how the movie performed, but yeah, it had been thought about and talked about after it didn't perform to Paramount's standards of deserving of a sequel, and also because the production had had so many problems with cuts with the MPAA, Maholka said that he felt Paramount was just not going to put their eggs in that basket again, and it was just going to be shelved. But Maholka and writer John Beard did think about it, but after John Beard died, that idea kind of got shelved. Now, in the past couple years, Maholka has been kind of talking about wanting to revive My Bloody Valentine and have, I think he has a story for it. And from interviews that I've seen with the original cast members, some of them know a little bit about it. What I understand is if there were to be a sequel, it would involve people from the original film and, of course, a new crop, a new generation of people, probably their kids, set in the same town. But that's all I know about it. I would love to see this happen. It'd be pretty cool.
1: And it's a perfect time to do it. I mean, there's no better time than now that's very popular. You know, we've got The Karate Kid, (laughs) uh, Cobra Kai picking up, you know, 35 years after the original. We've got Halloween picking up 40 years after the original movie. I just read that... uh, The Exorcist is going to pick up 50 years after the original and they're going to do a trilogy um, direct sequel to the original movie. So I think he's on, you know, I think that there's Strike While the Iron's Hot. Yeah. Let's see uh, My Bloody Valentine 2.
2: I could see it being a really good idea and with standards changing since 1981, how this movie was originally envisioned, I think would fly today. So hopefully Maholka would be able to not be as stifled as he was in the uh, original issues with the MPAA. You know, speaking of that, I know we got to close out, but man, just to bring up the uncut version again. I mean, honestly, if, if you've never seen this movie before and you are able to watch the uncut, do that. Um, it's not to say that the, the theatrical is wonderful and in some ways it's not like as bad as Sleepaway Camp 3 where you don't see any of the kills and it's like the hints are terribly you know hinted at that there are murders it's not that bad in some ways it's kind of interesting you know that you only see half of the kills kind of but If you're really going for it, watch the uncut edition. I mean, just extended scenes of that poor Dave that gets his face boiled in the hot dog water. Patty's death, you get a little bit more with that. I mean, poor Mabel in the dryer. You get more of Mabel in the dryer. And that one's easily one of the best.
1: Yeah, the uncut does the special effects justice, so... I agree with you. I'd definitely go for the uncut version if you have that option.
2: God, even the, the pickaxe through the chin that comes out the eye, I don't get it. How did that even happen? I wish that I was a special effects person because it's nothing short of uh, just a masterpiece of, of artwork to watch some of these effects happen.
1: Well, we hope you've enjoyed our episode on My Bloody Valentine. We have one more, our big grand finale, (sighs) one of the best horror films of all time, and that's Sam Raimi's Evil Dead that'll be coming up in just one short week as we celebrate Halloween with you guys. So thanks so much. Please stick around for that. If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel. All that's under our name at Don't Push Pause Podcast. If you'd like to check out old episodes or Buy anything from us. Uh, we have a store and a website, don't push pause All kinds of goodies on there, especially if you're looking to buy something for horror fans. We have tons of VHS horror movie boxes that are really cool keepsake boxes. Check them out on our store. If you want to reach us for any reason at all, you can always get a hold of us at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
2: And I'm Lindsay Reber.
1: Thanks so much for listening.
2: Thanks, guys. <laughs> Once upon a time, on a sad Valentine,
0: in a place known as Hanniger Mine, a legend began. Every woman and man would always remember the time, and those who remained were never the same. You could see the fear in their eyes. Once every year, as the 14th draws near, there's a hush all over the town. While the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know, as the years come and go, of the horror from long time ago. came and went and everyone spent the 14th in quiet regret and those still alive know the secret survives in the darkness that looms in the night for the legend they say on a valentine's day is a curse that'll live on and on and no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago In this little town When the 14th comes round There's a silence and fear in the air Remember the morn That the legend was born All the shock and the horror was there Oh, the legend they say On a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on As the years come and go of the horror from long time ago, and no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago.